Hello and welcome to the History Today podcast for March 2012. My name is Dean and I'm the website manager at History Today. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Roger Morehouse about Hitler's plan to transform Berlin into Germania, the vast capital of a thousand-year Reich. There would not have been a suburb of, of Berlin that would have been untouched by these plans. They were absolutely vast in conception. We also speak to Patrick Bishop, who tells us about Winston Churchill's obsession with sinking the German battleship Tirpitz. Everyone, not just the Brits, the Americans, the Japanese, the Italians, and the Germans all uh, seemed to feel they had to have this big fleet with big battleships at the heart of it. Finally, Craig Koslowski talks about his book, Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe. Medieval cities have a lot of activity at night, but none of it can be considered licit, and it can all be used to reflect badly on whomever is out at night. First up, we have Roger Morehouse, who wrote the cover story in our March issue about Germania, the project hatched by Adolf Hitler and his chief architect, Albert Speer, to transform Berlin into the capital of a greater German world empire. Roger spoke to History Today editor, Paul Ley. Roger, this is a vast project, and I wanted to, you to give us some sense of the scale of this imagined city. Mm. It is, it's absolutely enormous. Um, the main section of it that uh, most people will be familiar with is what was called the North-South Axis, which was a sort of se- seven-kilometre strip through the centre of Berlin, which was to be radically remod- remodelled with various grand buildings, a-, a vast sort of people's hall for congresses and so on, uh, a Nazified version of the, the Arc-, Arc-, Arc de Triomphe, um, and various other you know, headline buildings. And that was, the, that was the piece that Hitler was sort of most obsessed with and most interested in. Um, but it went much beyond that. What Speer did, what Albert Speer did, was to uh, take his remit in, in redesigning that sector of Berlin and to run with it and take it as an excuse for a radical remodelling and redesign of the entire city. Um, so he included sort of entire suburbs that were to be built, which had, you know, administrative um, areas built into them, residential, light industry, all sorts of areas that, that were built to, for, for those, um, to accommodate those moving out of the slums from the centre of the city, for example. Um, he also you know, went so far as to, to plan an entire sort of reorganisation of the flora of the, of the city, to restore the city's 18th century floral makeup in terms of the, the, the plants that surrounded the place. Um, so he took, it for, he took it as a massive opportunity to, to radically redesign the entire city. So it's not just that sort of headline axis uh, through the centre of the city. It, it is absolutely vast. Uh, and it includes you know, redesigning the, the, um, the rail network, the road network. There would not have been a suburb of, the, of Berlin that would, would, have, would have been untouched by these plans. They were absolutely vast in conception. And so was Berlin envisaged as some kind of central hub of this thousand-year Reich? What was its relation to the rest of this empire? Well, it was intended as the, as the capital of the, of the Aryan world. It was the capital of the greater Germany, first of all, um, and for whatever would come after that. So it was, it was foreseen as the capital of the Aryan world, as simple as that. Um, so it was, again, it, it tied into the sort of vast megalomaniacal political plans of the Third Reich as well. 
And was it ever more than just a pipe dream? Because a lot of it, um, reading your article, you realise that much of it, the great majority of it, was never built at all, mm. it never even began to be built. Mm -hmm. So was it any sense more than a pipe dream? This is really the, the heart of the article, I think, is that where it's been written about at all, and it's not written about that much, to be fair, but where it is written about, it's generally written from a sort of purely architectural perspective. Um, and viewed from that perspective, of course, we know that barely, probably, you know, 1% of this was actually ever built, barely that. Um, so it's sort of written from a sort of uh, rather theoretical perspective. This is what they had in mind uh, with, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek, isn't it, isn't it slightly preposterous? I take it in a slightly different way. I look at it in terms of the, the, the grand architectural planning of Nazi Germany and what they actually constructed in reality as well. And if you look at it in those terms, in terms of part of a grand scheme, a grand... Uh, plan to build serious uh, um, monumental architecture for the Third Reich and for the German people going forward, um, then it seems to make a bit more sense. Now, I, I actually go into this and look at, look at what was built elsewhere, places like Prora on, the, on the, uh, the Baltic coast, which is also largely unknown, which was an enormous um, holiday resort for German workers single building at Prora is four and a half kilometres long, and that was completed in 1939. It never saw use, but it was completed in its essentials. Um, other buildings like Goering's Air Ministry in Berlin is absolutely vast. You know, it, it occupies an entire block. It, it offers you know, thousands upon thousands of office, office, you know, offices and office space, um, and it's one of the biggest buildings still in Berlin to this day. So I think we have to see the plans for Germania in terms of that wider construction programme in Germany as a whole. And if you look at it in those terms, it seems to make a bit more sense and it seems to be become a little bit more real. Um, and we should also bear in mind, as I do in the article, that um, a lot of the stone, for example, that was cut, the granite and, and the marble that was uh, planned for those buildings, was actually cut. And there's a very intimate link between the concentration camp system and the, the you know the the creation of those building materials for for Berlin and elsewhere. So that's a very very intimate link, which doesn't generally get made very well or very very explicitly elsewhere. So again, that rather suggests that they were serious about doing this, and that's the, the whole point of my article. This is not mere pie in the sky. And you make the point um, repeatedly in the in the article that this monumentalism uh, is very much related to Hitler's misanthropic vision there. I mean, we see the connection between the actual logistics and the concentration camps, which is plainly a misanthropic project. Um, but in, in a sense, the whole thing symbolises Hitler's misanthropic philosophy. I wonder if you could talk about that. There are some wonderful images of Hitler sort of bent over these architectural models, which were, they were presented to him for his 50th birthday in April 1939. Um, and there are wonderful pictures of him bent over these models and sort of, you know, uh, contemplating them. And he did, he did sort of tend to go back to these models and spend his, his sort of downtime, if you like, uh, contemplating the, the future Berlin. Um, so it was something he was very fond of doing. And as we, as we well know, he was a frustrated artist and, and architect himself. 
the image that we have is always of Hitler bent over these these models, but there are no uh, sort of model people involved. There are, there are no figures in those images, which I think is quite telling. And it's a point that's been made very well elsewhere. Um, the suggestion is that he was interested in those buildings alone. He was not interested in the people that would one day inhabit them. And to his credit, actually, I think this is what Speer tried to sort of inject into the programme, is to give it some semblance of a human face, to some semblance, if you can even you know refer to it in those terms, but some semblance of a social conscience to those vast megalomaniacal plans. Um, but Hitler himself seems to have been just obsessed with the buildings themselves rather than you know, any sort of conception of how people would live and work and, and inhabit them. And can you tell us something about Speer himself, who's obviously absolutely central to this project? This is the man who's trying to put um, Hitler's vision into concrete, literally. Um, how did he become... Hitler's star architect. What was his background before that? What was his relationship to the Nazi Party and mm. Hitler before 1937 when he was given this project? Speer was very young at the time. Um, I think he was born in 1905, so he was still only in his mid-30s at the time. Um, he had uh, come across the Nazis as a student and had um, not necessarily been... I think he'd been seduced a little bit by Hitler. He'd been to, a, to one of Hitler's speeches and had been seduced by Hitler's sort of oratory. Um, and had become a party party member, and had subsequently, as a young architect, he had, he had um, bid for a number of sort of minor party contracts, and a couple of which he'd won, and had carried out rather effectively. So he he came to the to the awareness of the of the party hierarchy. Um, he was initially one of many. I mean, there are many architects that are carrying out these building projects. They're all they're not all Speer. Um, People like Werner March, for example, who, who had done the, the Olympic Stadium in 1936. Um, uh, Ernst Sagerbeil, who did the uh, Tempelhof um, Airport also in 1936. So various other uh, architects who rose to prominence in, in the Third Reich. So Speer was initially one of many. But uh, he seems to have um, forged a very sort of personal, close relationship with Hitler. Hitler saw in the young Speer... Um, you know, arguably the young, the young successful architect that he would have liked to have become. Um, but in terms of the of the sort of pure architecture of them, um, there's a wonderful quip actually from Gerdi Troost, and that was another one of, of Hitler's favourite architects. Was was um, uh, Paul Ludwig Troost, who, who died I think in 1937. Um, but his widow uh, summed up Speer's relationship with Hitler by saying that. Um, you know, if Hitler said that a certain street had to be, or a building had to be 100 metres wide, um, Troost would have said, well, my Führer, it has to be 96 metres wide for various reasons, whereas Speer would have said, my Führer, it has to be 120 metres wide. So Speer played into this, uh, into Hitler's megalomania by always sort of, you know, pushing him to be more extreme and more sort of, more megalomaniacal. So it's... It, there is an element of that. I mean, it's meant as a joke, but there's a, there's a strong element of that in the way that Speer seems to have gone about his, his uh, sort of planning with Hitler, that he was always pushing Hitler to be bigger, to be, to be, to be more uh, megalomaniacal. So how much of this was completed? It's quite interesting. A lot of the grand building that was done in Berlin in the mid-1930s was intended retrospectively to be incorporated into the Germania plan. So things like like um, Goering's Air Ministry, 
like the Reich Chancellery that was destroyed at and the end Temple of the war. Hoff as well. Temple Hoff yeah. as well. Which and, is still and a striking it building. It is, it's a remarkable it, building. Um, and, and the Olympic Stadium. So all of those were intended to be, to be incorporated retrospectively, but they don't strictly belong to Germania. Um, what is left of Germania, most notably, is what's called the East-West Axis, or was called the East-West Axis, is now called the, um, the Street of 17th of July, <clears throat> which runs to the west of the Brandenburg Gate. Um, for something like about five kilometres. Uh, and that was built by Speer as, as the counterpoint to the north-south axis. And the this north, is axis the, the Tiergarten. Yeah. That runs straight through the Tiergarten. So it was, it was an expansion of an existing street anyway. And it was expanded to you know, something like four lanes either way and, and, and um, various aspects like the, the, the Seeger soil of the Victory Column had to be moved um, to, to clear a space for some of these grand plans. And the victory column going back to the Franco... Exactly, yeah. So then what's, what's there of, of uh, Germania now, most notably, is this east-west axis, uh, which is worth a look. It still has some of Speer's original, um, rather elegant actually, rather, rather elegant lamps, street lamps on it. Um, so that's, that's the main bit. There's also a quite remarkable um, structure down in the south of the city, which is, which is called, in German, it's called the Schwerbelastungskörper, which is the heavy load-bearing body in translation. And it's literally, it's, it's like a champagne cork in, in solid concrete, and it weighs over 12,000 tonnes. So it's, you know, something akin to a World War II cruiser. Um, and it's the size of a sort of a large, you know, perhaps four-storey building. And it was planted in the ground to measure the ability of Berlin's sandy soil to accommodate great weight. So it had measuring devices in the base which would, which would gauge how much the, the body itself shifted in the sand. Um, and that was built in 1941 as a, as a sort of planning exercise because it was close to the site where they wanted to build this enormous Arc, Arc, Arc de Triomphe, in inverted commas. Um, and of course they, they did the measurements, which it did shift by, by something more than was originally foreseen, but whether that would have stopped them is a, is a moot point. Um, but of course at the end of the war they had this enormous concrete lump, um, couldn't really be destroyed, couldn't be dismantled, so it's still there. And where is it? It's down in the suburb of Tempelhof, um, very, very close to uh, the main sort of S-barn out to the south, so it's... it's, it's, it's it's still there as a sort of a curiosity and, a, and, a, and a, a monument to megalomania, in effect. And when did this whole project, when did it become apparent that this project was not going to come anywhere near completion, was, was, was barely going to begin? Was there a point, was there a point of acceptance that this is not going to happen? Or did that just come with the end of the war? Well, if at all, then remarkably late, because even with the outbreak of war, I mean, certain there are certain... Um, aspects of sort of belt tightening going on in the German economy, obviously, and redirection, reorientation of, of, of funds and effort. Um, but the Germania project was always protected from that. It always had its sort of finances largely re- ring-fenced. Um, the advent of war, of course, brought large numbers of POWs who, who could be brought in to, to serve as labourers in clearing these various sites that, that had to be done. And that was done quite assiduously in the early years of the war. Um, and even by 1942-43, the authorities are still doing things like clearing um, cemeteries and graveyards that, that lie in the path of this north-south axis. So they're still doing the preparatory work for a future building project. It's sort of formally suspended in the middle of 1943. 
Um, so that was the point at which they had, they seem to have realised that either this isn't going to happen or we have to at least shelve it for the time being, you know, pending pending a, an Axis victory, which of course never came. Well, thank you, Roger. It's a fascinating article. And uh, it's our cover story for March. Thank you. Thank you. That was Roger Morehouse on Germania. Next, we have Patrick Bishop discussing Winston Churchill's obsession with sinking the Tirpitz during the Second World War. Patrick spoke to Paul Lay, who began by asking him about why there was such a concerted effort to destroy the battleship. This was a classic example of uh, leaders and admirals uh, fighting the last war over again, or preparing to fight the last war uh, in their build-up for you know, the post-First World War world. So you'd imagine that it had been pretty well established in the First World War that submarines and aircraft were probably where the future lay in terms of, um, of gaining maritime power. But nonetheless, everyone, not it was the Brits, the Americans, the Japanese, the Italians and the Germans all uh, seemed to feel they had to have this big fleet with big battleships at the heart of it. So it wasn't just a British obsession. Everyone still clung to the notion that an enormous vessel laden with armour and bristling with guns was where real uh, naval power lay. It became apparent very quickly that wasn't the case. And Churchill's particular obsession, this must go back, I suppose, to the time when he was at the Admiralty. Yeah, it's a bit of a contradictory... Well, he's a contradictory character in many ways, as we know, but uh, at one level he was very innovative. You know, he learnt to fly. He was one of the first people to learn to fly, very badly, uh, it seems. Uh, he was interested in submarines, etc. But he still had this kind of Edwardian respect for a kind of dreadnought-class vessel. And so you see, you know, again, his judgment often was a little bit erratic, but uh, he seemed to kind of invest Tirpitz and its sister ship uh, Bismarck with, with a potency that he didn't really have. And if you actually look at the possible scenarios of what could have happened if Tirpitz had indeed broken out into the Atlantic or got out amongst the Arctic convoys, sure, it would have done a lot of damage, it would have sunk a lot of ships, but it may well have got sunk itself in the process. And ways of containing it were legion. You didn't need to keep quite as many uh, big vessels tied up um, in the way that uh, that they were for you know, really key periods of the war when they could have been put to much better use elsewhere in the Mediterranean and in the Far East. So it's, it's, a, it's really, I think, that what you say is right. It's a kind of, it's a mindset, it's an Edwardian mindset that can't really shake, shake off this idea that that's where power really lies. And what's curious about that, um, as far as I was concerned, is that I'm, I'm very used when reading um, histories of the Second World War about the way in which Brits were backward in terms of strategy and tactics. What's surprising about this is the way in which the Germans adopted a similar mindset too, um, which, which seems unusual considering how far uh, how far sighted their army was, for instance, in terms of tactics and strategy. Yes, um, I think you can really nail that down to the personality of Raider, who was the Gross Admiral at the for the key period, you know, from uh, through the 30s when the build-up was going on. And the other crucial element is Hitler's lack of interest in naval affairs, which he was the first to own up to. So the idea of battleships appealed to uh, Hitler's grandiosity. He wanted the big toy in his armament, so he let Raider have his head. Um, meanwhile, of course, Dönitz is arguing 
for the U-boat uh, fleet, saying this is really where uh, our situation, we're not a big maritime nation, this is where we can really damage the Allies. And eventually, of course, Dernitz replaces radar and the thing swings over. But you've got a combination of someone who's, again, suffering from this uh, kind of First World War mindset and someone who's uninterested, the leader's uninterested, so he's given a free hand and ends up with a fleet that, um, even if it had ever been built, the war intervened before it could be, it would have been uh, anti-deluvian, it would have been an absurd, absurdly over-reliant uh, on a surface fleet if it had ever come to fruition. And can you talk us through the, the, the chronology of the turbid story? Because you, you mentioned the Bismarck as well, we have these vast ships, and yet they're strikingly ineffective and almost it, it has an almost static life in a way anyone who would probably be quite surprised when they read the book is just how actual little action the ship is involved in yes it's uh, it's, it's a huge black hole soaking up resources manpower rare commodities or increasingly rare commodities like steel and oil uh, and it sits there in most of its life in a in a su succession of norwegian fjords um, doing nothing at all, really. Uh, it only really ventured out once on the high seas. It never sank a ship. But it did nonetheless exercise this sort of mesmeric effect on the British naval planners. So they did feel they had to keep a equivalent or look slightly larger fleet constantly on the lookout for turpits should it break out. But the uh, not just the ship, the men on board the ship had a very strange and rather pleasant existence compared with their comrades on the Eastern Front, which is not very far away from where they were a lot of the time. So they were sitting there leading the life of Riley. The ship was fantastic. It was like a, a you know, luxury cruise liner or something in some respects. It had uh, you know, bakeries, cinemas, um, libraries. The captain, who was there for most of the time, was a very good leader. He was very aware of the, of the dangers of boredom. And so there were constant uh, self-improving classes, you know, if you were really desperate, you could do raffia weaving. Uh, it's a very un-Teutonic uh, <laughs> venture. And you know, they'd go ashore and go seagull egg hunting and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, the real enemy was boredom. You know, they, they were spending most of the time trying to avoid going nuts and also feeling terribly guilty because not only are their comrades being killed in their tens of thousands, not so far away, freezing cold, starving, but back at home, you know, their families are getting bombarded by the RAF. A lot of them came from from um, you know maritime towns of Hamburg, etc. So they're reading of these you know huge raids on, on their hometowns, and they're sitting there in virtually no danger at all. Mm. So there's a real sense of helplessness about uh, about them and idleness as well. I, idleness and a, yeah, yeah. and a thirst thirst for action. You yeah, know? Yeah. So they, they really did want to get out there and do something, but uh, for a succession of reasons they didn't. And most of the time they were on the receiving end of all these extraordinary ventures um, by. Uh, sea and air that were launched against them by the RAF and the Navy. And this is where the real excitement of the book lies, is in these extraordinary attempts to sabotage the ship, to sink the ship, to attack the ship. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I mean, they started off conventionally trying to sink it by dropping bombs on it, but at that stage the RAF was in no condition uh, to actually carry out a a raid of that uh, magnitude. That and what, the weapons. what period does this? This is this is really almost in the first months of the war. So at that point, the ship was in Wilhelmshaven, and uh, so various raids were sent over, dropping bombs. The, the aiming uh, capacity and the strength of the bombs was simply didn't 
uh, do anything to it. You know, they, if they did hit, they bounced off, and most of the time they didn't come anywhere near. Uh, so you had to think of other ways of doing it. They persisted with these raids, but it was clear that they weren't going to work. So um, mines turned to unorthodox tactics. So you have um, odd weapons like the human torpedo, which had actually been pioneered by the Italians. Uh, and so this extraordinary sort of long-range mission was launched to tow these human torpedoes, which are basically what they sound like. They're kind of, you know, uh, giant torpedoes, two men sit astride them, they go under, just under the surface of the water, dive under the hull of the ship, detach their mines, and then hopefully, um, you know, escape. But this almost got to the point where the attack was launched, but uh, bad weather blew up and the mini submarine, uh, sorry, the um, human torpedoes uh, came loose from their moorings. So it was, um, it was a gallant venture, enormous ingenuity, enormous courage, particularly from the Norwegians. Norwegians played a great role in all of these operations. There are uh, people on shore, the underground on shore, who's uh, extremely good at, at providing information about every aspect of the turf. It's not just where it was, but you know the state of right down to the state of morale on board. There were certainly reports back uh, that Norwegian women used to um, work in, on the ships and would you know, collect scraps of information put together and radio back to London. So you've got a, a huge kind of all-round effort in all these attempts. Um, this was the human torpedoes were followed by midget submarines, what, exactly what they sound like again, towed across the North Sea by uh, proper submarines, and then uh, undergo this you know, very difficult navigation into this fjord tucked away right at the end of the big inlet. And that one almost succeeded. I mean, they, they by extraordinary skill and resolution they managed to put a couple of bombs under the turpits and put it out of action for six or seven months. Uh, so that, that one came as close as anything did to succeeding until the final point when Tallboy, uh, the Tallboy bomb was a big enough bomb and had the penetrative power to get through the armour. So very late in the day, by, the, by which time turpits had pretty much ceased to pre present any kind of threat at all. Um, it went down with a loss of, uh, of 900 lives, a spectacular and ghastly end. That was Patrick Bishop on the efforts to sink the German battleship Tirpitz. In our final interview this month, we caught up with Craig Koslowski. Craig's book, Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe, won the Longman History Today Book of the Year Award for 2012, and we spoke to him via telephone in his Chicago office. First of all, Craig, I wanted to ask you about the origins of the book and the background of how you came to work on this um, extraordinary history of the night. You know, looking back, there were several points of origin. I have to mention my colleague, Susan Carrot Nunn. She's a senior scholar of Reformation history at the University of Arizona. I remember asking her about this project in 1995, and I said, Susan, I've got this idea about a history of the night. Do you, do you think that could be anything real? Don't you think it would just be kind of banal? I mean, the history of the night, what is there to say? And Susan said, I encourage you to do it. It's a great idea. You will find something, and everything has a history. The first scholarly pioneer was not a historian, uh, but rather um, uh, a Jewish scholar and philosopher uh, named Abraham Joshua Heschel. 
and uh, one of his most simple and popular writings was a book called The Sabbath. And I remember I was a teaching assistant in grad school in the early 90s, and I was assigned to teach that book, which I had never encountered before. And Heschel's argument in that book is that for the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath is a cathedral in time. And he strikingly underscores the difference between his view of Judaism as a religion of sacred time in contrast with other traditions that focus more on sacred space. And that was a real revelation to me, uh, because I had never thought of the Jewish tradition in that way. As a historian of the Reformation in Christianity, I was very aware of sacred space. So I thought, space versus time. Everyone in early modern studies was looking at space, right? In my, in my first book, I studied burial location. Christian burial in churches, Christian burial outside of city walls. Everybody has read something about the gardens of Versailles or palaces like Versailles as sites, work on theater as a space. But I thought, nobody's looking at time. Can't I get time into that? So Heschel was a forerunner who said, time is the sacred category for Judaism in contrast to space for some other tradition. So I thought, maybe time can be an, an analytic category. And then I was, I was writing my dissertation on the history of attitudes toward death and the afterlife in Lutheran Germany from the 15th century on. And I discovered in the second half of the 17th century a strange new practice among Lutherans in, in Dresden or, or Berlin or Leipzig, uh, the practice of honorable Christian burial at night. Honorable Christian burial at night and very ornate Baroque Christian burial at night, and, and as, as someone who was writing a dissertation on, on death ways, I knew that Christians did not bury people honorably at night, and had not since the time of Roman persecutions. So I thought, well, what is happening here that would make the nighttime move from, as we were saying a, a moment ago, from a medieval view of nocturnal burial as a burial time for criminals, heretics, suicides, mm -hmm. to becoming an ornate time, a time of, of luxurious excess with torch-lit funeral processions dramatically set against the night. Uh, so I started to look for, for the predecessors who had studied this topic, and they, they surfaced in very obscure places. A Polish uh, art historian named Maria Rezepinska wrote something about the prevalence of darkness in 17th century painting. And of course, if you think of Caravaggio or Rembrandt, you think of the, their deployment of darkness to emphasize certain areas on a canvas to create emotion or movement. Um, and there was a little bit on the night in, in European literature, in particular English literature, a fellow named Chris Fitter in uh, New Jersey had published a little something on that. But it was all sort of tucked away in odd little places that no one had, no one had put it together and thought about it as belong to a new topic, the, the history of the night. Mm -hmm. so, and one of the, what it seems to me the study is about, ultimately, is, is a moment of, of grand transition, if you like. Exactly. Um, and we have the medieval view of night and the medieval view of time, and this changes in a relatively brief historical period, um, yep. uh, largely as an elite change, one that, that, that's directed and, and motivated by elites, by and large, 
um, into an early modern one and one that we can recognise as a modern view of the night. I wonder if you could paint, uh, paint a, a sort of short picture of um, what, the, what was there in the medieval world and how that transformed itself. In other words, what we have before this transition mm -hmm. and what we have after.
very sympathetic to movements that start at the top and work their way down. I'm trained as a social historian and historian of daily life. I, I'm not looking for top-down processes, but part of the process of nocturnalization in the early modern period is driven by elites, and conspicuous consumption of time is one of the ways that they show their elite status. And this starts at royal courts. And Versailles is significant, but also the courts of Charles I and Charles II in England. Um, and there's a diffusion from there. You know, the night connects the intellectual ferment that's coming from Descartes and Hobbes and Spinoza and Locke with a very real set of issues for people in the late 17th and through the 18th century. Are ghosts real? Are spirits real? Are witches real? Can angels come and affect physical things on Earth? And these issues get hashed out at night in coffee houses. And these changes are necessary and requisite to what we now think of as the Enlightenment and the creation of the modern world. Absolutely. They are a part of that. But one of the things I show in the, the last full chapter of my book is that the Enlightenment is also an endarkenment because the manipulation of light that we see in elite culture with Louis XIV at Versailles or with the establishment of street lighting or coffee houses, that is not just a manipulation of light. It's also a manipulation of darkness. And you see this in the literature on theater technology, where the, the great theater technicians of the world, from Inigo Jones on, they say, in this Baroque stage, we can darken parts of the stage so that the audience cannot see characters being brought on or scenes being changed, and we can selectively light up one part of the stage to draw the attention there or to bedazzle the viewer. So the Enlightenment is creating zones of darkness, just as street lighting creates new outcasts, new crimes, new zones of darkness. The Enlightenment is doing the same thing. And of course, these people sitting around in coffee houses pretty quickly come to the conclusion that people in other parts of the world may still believe in ghosts and spirits and witches, but that shows how benighted they are. Thank you, Craig. Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe by Craig Kozlowski is published by Cambridge University Press, and it's the winner of the 2012 Longman History Today Book of the Year Award. Um, thank you, Craig, for talking to us. You're thank very you. welcome, Pat. Thank you. And that's it for this month. Our thanks to Roger Morehouse, Patrick Bishop and Craig Koslowski for their time. You can read Roger's piece on Germania and Patrick's article on the Tirpitz in the March edition of History Today, which is out now. You can also listen to previous editions of the podcast and comment on anything you've heard today by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening.